Hello, I'm John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. Welcome to this week's Alpha podcast. Uh, and this week we are joined by none other than Simon Thompson. How are you doing, Simon? I'm doing very well, John. It's been a weird year, to say the least. It really, really has. Um, but nevertheless, you've sort of ploughed on with your uh, your uh, small cap strategies. Although it seems that there's been some sort of in- interesting themes that have emerged from the way you've been thinking about uh, stock selection this year. We'll, we'll come on to those in a minute. Should we, should we start by talking sort of generally about your thoughts about uh, the markets and, and where they are today uh, and where you think they might go? Well, actually, interestingly, as of today, this week, uh, the small cap, uh, FTSE small cap index and ditto the FTSE AIM index are at inflection points. The AIM index has been moving um, sideways and is about to actually break out above the 978 level. To give you some idea, that's the level it was at before the market crashed back in February. Um, so it's actually recovered all the losses, the AIM index, whereas the, say, the FTSE All Share Index is down still 16-17% since February. And that's interesting for me because it shows risk appetite amongst investors. Investors don't generally buy small cap, less liquid stocks, unless sentiment is good. And that's actually reinforced by the uh, FTSE Small Cap Index. That's actually uh, that's down 13% since the February crash. Um, you know, it's down over 40% at one stage, so it's bounced back a lot. But that's actually breaking out again. It's been in a consolidation period since early June. As of now, it's starting to break out. And that basically reinforces what I'm saying about sentiment for the smaller end of the market. Um, And Ditto, you're still seeing positive sentiment in the States. You know, the tech stocks, um, obviously, NASDAQ, etc., and what, what, what I'm trying to say is that that could be a leading indicator for the larger indices. Why do you think that so far the smaller cap indices have, have outperformed, the, the, certainly in the UK, the large cap indices in the way that they have? Um, the, the higher growth. Um, so AIM is chock full of companies that are either early stage or you would expect, sorry, less mature, should I say, um, so you'd expect the earnings growth to be greater um, over the near term. And also their cash flows, as they improve, the discounted value of those cash flows is actually worth more now than it was when interest rates were a lot higher. You know, obviously got negative bond yields across the yield curve across the world and pretty close to zero um, in the UK. So the discounted value of cash flows at these small cap stocks are going to be earning um, are actually worth more in present day money. I, I, I just think that people are actually cottoning on to the fact that perhaps um, the bad news was overbaked, especially for the UK. You know, you, you've got a UK discount for various reasons. And as that discount unwinds, you'd expect the small cap end of the market to actually outperform large caps, uh, which it has been doing since the market's started bouncing off those March lows. But there is still quite a lot of uncertainty out there in terms of uh, the ability of companies to forecast. I mean, yes, yes, we're seeing sort of uh, better sentiment towards, towards those growth stocks, but, but the risks still remain quite high. Do you think investors still need to be somewhat cautious about what they're buying, even at the smaller end of the market? 
you know, I, I focused, which you were saying earlier, focused on specific areas of the market this year that's um, the risk is skewed in the favour of a profitable outcome for investors. Um, but what I'd say regards to that point about guidance from companies, one reason why companies aren't giving guidance at the moment is the legal situation. If they give guidance and they miss guidance, then um, you've got to look whether or not they actually misled investors. Um, and if there's uncertainty over certain revenues coming through, then these directors are more inclined to just withdraw guidance from the market. So I've had conversations. I, I speak to the vast majority of the companies I write about, um, some of which I can't report if it's off the record, but you know that's, that's how journalism goes. But not that I write about it, um, because obviously if, if it is off the record, you can't. But what I'm saying is that informal conversations with directors about their guidance that the reason in a lot of cases isn't necessarily the fundamental business it's legality okay interesting um you mentioned that um you know you're looking at certain sectors of the market certain areas uh where you think there are richer pickings or lower risks than, than, than some other areas of the market can you talk through some of the themes that perhaps you're you are looking at um, given that we still have and probably have for some time this backdrop of COVID-19 and lockdowns and whatever else that brings? Um, I, I take a thematic view and certainly have for more or less all of this year since the markets started to um, change in late February. So I, I've looked very heavily at this technology sector, software sector. Um, I've looked um, at companies like LoopUp, which is... Um, a remote conferencing company, both video and audio for professional service verticals like lawyers, investment bankers, PR companies. And that business has got amazing operational gearing. I, I put it into my early July alpha reports and they've beaten forecasts and, you know, it's, it's going great guns. One reason why the stock price is up so heavily. Um, another company is MTI Wireless that does the backhaul mask for 5G. And also irrigation systems, remote irrigation systems. So it's a theme on climate change. But again, that's that's software. That's what they do. Another company is ThinkSmart. It owns a very valuable stake in something called ClearPay, which is a buy now, pay later um, platform. Um, the other ninety percent is owned by a company called Afterpay. It's a twenty-two billion um, Australian dollar market cap. Five percent of Afterpay is owned by Tencent. Tencent is the well, to give you some idea how big it is, Hong Kong, $4 trillion um, market cap um, is the biggest technology play out of China. So, so I, I've looked at areas that are going to do rather well, given the backdrop of COVID. Um, other ones like um, in the healthcare sector, Venture Life, they take all brands, they rejuvenate them. They, they, they do basic things like... Um, dental mouthwashes, uh, air, um, tooth whiteners and things like that, Ultradex, um, they sell it through Boots now, but they've just signed a massive 170 million euro uh, contract to distribute it in China, which is brilliant for a small cap company. Uh, that, that was an alpha stock um, last year and stock prices doubled since then. I've tried and avoided since early... Um, first quarter this year, property stocks after they tumbled until I actually had a feel for how well the rent collections are actually going. Because my, my view on the property sector is that 
there'll be a window opportunity for distressed sales and companies with cash will be picking up properties at bargains, decent covenants, properties that is. Um, so I, I've, you know, since the last six, seven months, I haven't initiated coverage on any property stock. I've just looked after the ones that I follow. Um, but bearing that in mind, there is value in the sector. I, I was speaking to, say, Circle Property, which is... Um, um, a property company run by stalwart in the industry called John Arnold, and their rent collections are excellent. Um, and Ditto last week, First Property Group, which is a fund manager in the UK, also owns uh, properties over in Poland and Romania, they revealed their rent collections, 93 94 95%, 96% across Romania, Poland, UK, um, over the five months to end of August. So, so what, what I'm saying is that although certain sectors are sold down quite heavily, not all companies are actually doing badly within those. So you can actually stock pick investment opportunities amongst the rubble. Um, and that's why I did this week with First Property Group. Um, I, I said, this is absolutely crazy. They're, that was an online only article. So investors can read it off our website. Um, but, but what I've said to readers is, look, you know, the stock price is 35 pence. Um, market capitalization about 39 million pounds they've got 21 million pounds free cash unencumbered cash in the balance sheet which is roughly over 20 pence of the 35 pence share price they've got equity in properties over in poland which are high yielding um which is worth another 14 15 pence the debt on those properties is non-recourse to the parents um not not that you know that, that they walk away from those properties and then they've got a fund management business in the price for free, which made three million pounds worth of um, fee income last financial year. Um, and they've got interests worth about twenty-seven million pounds. The market cap is only about thirty-eight, thirty-nine million pounds. They've got interest in funds that they manage. So what, what what I've told readers is this valuation is absolutely crazy. You know, cash on the balance sheet and equity in these properties over in Poland backs up the whole market cap. You're getting the fund manager business for nothing you're getting the interest in these funds for nothing despite the fact they made a pre-tax profit of one and a half million last financial year and the company's just said that its rent collections are you know knocking on 96 percent in certain sectors uh, sorry geographic regions um tenants aren't defaulting yeah absolutely and you know i've noticed uh quite quite regularly uh, in some of your uh, your articles you're you're sticking to the old sort of Ben Graham uh, value approach, the Ben Graham recovery approach. So as well as the sort of targeting the, the sectors that have that COVID tailwind, you haven't given up on the old bargain, Simon Thompson bargain shares approach. Absolutely not. And what I'd say is that um, since, um, you know, the timing of this year's bargain shares couldn't have been any worse in terms of it was released on the 7th of February. The market started to crash two weeks later, 10, 11 days later. Um, but to give you some idea of the performance, the average gain on those stocks is 17% this year. So if you bought them on the first day, just held them as of today, you're up 17%. The FTSE All Share Index, by comparison, on total return basis, including dividends, is down 16%. So the outperformance of these value stocks I selected is 33% against the All Share. Um, the FTSE AM Index is flatlining. Um, the FTSE small cap index is down 13%. So these Ben Graham value-orientated stocks have done rather well. And yeah, I, I've, I've kept to the theme because if you can pick decent businesses with significant 
asset backing that you can foresee a catalyst to change investor sentiment, then over time, um, the discount to NEV will narrow and in certain cases go to a significant premium as soon as investors realise that you know, the risk baked into their valuations is, is just, it's just too much. Yeah, it's a big old margin of safety you've got in, uh, in many cases there. First Property is a classic example. And I've said to readers this week, you know, buy the stock ahead of results in November because this, this is crazy. Do, do you not worry, though, that, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, you know, there is still a lot of uncertainty about how this pandemic plays out and certainly the government response to the pandemic plays out. Are we, are we jumping the gun a bit with value? Do you think there could be another uh, twist in sentiment that, that, that sees you know, uh, attitudes towards sectors like property and, and sort of value more generally sour again? Because it, it has sort of struggled to break out as a strategy for some time, generally. Um, I'd, I'd say my, my strategy is more identifying undervalued stocks with a chunk of those being in the value category. So I... Or, I gave you examples of Loop Up and Think Smart. So, I mean, Think Smart was a classic Ben Graham play, by the way, um, which has you know played out fantastically well. The stock is up two hundred percent since since the end of April. But th- those were those were the margin of safety there was so huge that if you could take more than you know a day trading attitude to your stock holding period. Over a period of you know six to eight months, the risk reward was so heavily skewed to the upside. So what what I'm saying is that if you selectively buy stocks which hit a price point where you think, well, actually, I could see the price drift a bit more, but I think over a realistic period of time, the upside is so many times greater than the downside. I think that strategy is still going to work now. Yeah. There, there are, though, I mean, general concerns about markets being, you know, rather frothy. You mentioned the Nasdaq earlier, you know, that's been hitting all time highs even throughout this crisis. There are, there are worries over the valuation, some of the bigger tech stocks that, that, that really make up, you know, the vast majority of the returns from, from some sort of major global indices. Um, should, should investors be worried that the market is going to take uh, a turn for the worse? Um, you know, we, we are seeing a lot of stimulus uh, there's a presidential election taking place. There are a lot of unknowns out there, but a lot of things that potentially back the market up. But it, but it is, a, it is a dangerous time. People are sort of a bit worried about where the markets are going. Should they be in cash? What, what's your view on, on what comes next? Uh, well, actually, that's quite an interesting one because theoretically, um, well, it's not so much theoretically, the S&P 500, the performance of it three months before the US election, has been a fantastic leading indicator of who's going to win the election. And since the 2nd, 3rd of August this year, the S&P 500 is up 4.5%. And the rule is, in the last nine elections, the incumbent party has always won the election if the index is up in the three-month period prior to the election. Um, In the last 23 elections, the rule has only not worked um, three times. The, The last time it didn't work was actually the 1980 election when um, Ronald Reagan actually beat um, Jimmy Carter and the S&P 500 was up 7% in the preceding quarter. So what I'm trying to say is that the polls are actually telling us Biden's going to win. The S&P 500, according to this rule, says no, Trump is going to win. And I sat back and actually had a long think about this. 
why would the market be betting this is going to be a Reagan year, so it's going to rally heavily before the election, and the um, the incumbent party is actually going to lose. And the reason for that was actually revealed with Biden's uh, Bidenomics um, pro-growth strategy in the last week, when it was you know announced that two trillion dollars worth of infrastructure spend is going to be um, it's going to be made during the term if he actually gets into power. Um, and the, you know the numbers that I were actually reading this week. So he's he's earmarked of that spend. 500,000 solar panels, 60,000 wind turbines, 500,000 charging stations for cars. Um, these are huge numbers, John. These, these are colossal numbers. And Moody Analytics have done some research into this, and they've actually calculated that the additional GDP growth over the four-year term of a Biden incumbent party administration would be almost 5%. They've calculated by 2022 under these plans, GDP would actually growth that year would hit almost 8%. 8%. That's an emerging market economy growth rate. That isn't, you know, the world's largest economy, the Americas. Um, they've also calculated that the rise in per capita income over the Biden uh, four-year term would be an additional $4,000 per US person. And that's why Wall Street's rallying. Yeah. They've actually they've cottoned on that this is a game changer. That even if Biden increases corporation tax, which you know he said he will, and other taxes, the economic stimulus that this two trillion dollar infrastructure investment plan will actually create will offset the negative impacts of paying actually higher taxes. Um, so I, th I think we might perhaps, you know, for the first time since 1980, be in a situation where Wall Street will continue to rally and Trump could lose. You're going to have to update trading secrets, Simon, if the, uh, the rule stops working. I know the presidential election cycle was something that you looked at quite closely in your, your book, your first book. Um, it is, and actually the presidential cycle has, has, has worked this time again. That you know, if you bought it um, just over two years ago, the S and P five hundred, you're, you're sitting very prettily. You've, you've had a scary ride, may I say? Because if you remember, in the first, sorry, the final quarter of two thousand eighteen, Wall Street and global markets took a tumble, um, and obviously you had the stock market crash this year. But you know, with with the U.S. indices trading at all time highs, and you know, you've the U.S. presidential cycle theory has, has worked a dream again, um, but no, th th this is a new one that I wasn't aware of. This um, th this incumbent party theory, um, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing rule. But I, as I said, I was trying to work out why why the rule wouldn't work this year, why Trump would lose, but the U.S. stock markets could continue rallying. And the point is, if U.S. stock markets continue to rally. That's actually good for global stock markets. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned that infrastructure is key to biodynamics, as, as you put it. Um, the same, the same sort of uh, approach is, is perhaps being taken over in the UK as well. I mean, we heard Boris speaking uh, this week about a, a big push uh, in renewable energy, um, which, which is you know very much in, in keeping with what what uh, Joe Biden is, is talking about. Do, do, is this another theme that that you think is worth tapping into uh, as this infrastructure spending starts to, to filter through uh, to companies? I, I spotted this back in 2016, so four and a half years ago, when I put Gresham House, a alternative asset fund manager, into my 2016 bargain shares portfolio. And since then, the company has built a multi-billion 
sterling fund management business, assets under management, uh, forestry, renewables, so solar, wind, um, power, battery storage plants, um, even things like vertical farms, um, which are actually incredibly interesting. So, you know, when you pop into Asda and you buy your rocket salad, that actually comes from one of the vertical farms that Gresham House actually runs, and the yields on those are about 400 times higher than just normal farming. Sorry, I, I, I digress. But the, the other thing that Gresham House actually um, invested in is something called Gresham House Energy Storage Fund. Um, and the idea there was to create an infrastructure in the UK for offshore and onshore um, wind energy, electricity, to be fed back to storage um, units and then from there fed back into the grid which is going to be critical if we're going to actually hit our zero emissions targets and increase uh, renewal, renewable energy generation, because obviously we can't use all renewable energy at the same time. Um, it, it's got to be stored somewhere before it actually goes into the grid and then actually is released to, to homes. The ticker is GRID, G-R-I-D, but Gresham House Energy Storage is doing fantastically well. It's now up to 350 megawatts of energy storage capacity. And to give you some idea, when the UK government announced its um, its plans in the next 10 years, its plans is to increase uh, from 10 gigawatts to 40 gigawatts the offshore wind capacity. So basically, this one storage company has got roughly 3.5% um, of the current offshore wind capacity it could actually take into its storage units and then release it back into the grid. And the point is it doesn't need subsidies and, and neither do the um, wind operators. Uh, back in 2014, the UK government was guaranteeing the equivalent of 14 pence a kilowatt hour to the offshore wind operators. It would actually buy the electricity from them at that price unless they could actually sell it higher on the wholesale market. At the auction last year, it went through at below four pence a kilowatt hour. And to give you some idea, I pay about 13 and a half pence a kilowatt hour for my electricity um, on a domestic home. So those guarantees will never be called upon by the operators because they'll always be able to sell the electricity at a higher price back into the grid. What I'm saying is that the these plans by the UK government to increase their capacity from 10 to 40 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity, which would basically be between 35% and 40% of our total energy demand needs, has two ramifications. One, we need the battery storage plants to actually store this energy. And that's what companies like Gresham House Energy Systems do. And secondly, we've got to ramp up massively the expansion of the wind turbines. We'd have to produce an extra 260 wind turbines a year over the next decade, so that would be 2,500, 2,600 turbines. And to put that into perspective, if you look across the whole of the 11 European countries that have wind, offshore wind turbines, there's only 4,000 at the moment. Yeah. So basically, you know, we, we've got to increase production to the equivalent of two-thirds of the current um, capacity. Gresham House um, aside, um, are there many ways to play this on the UK market? Have we, have we got the companies to deliver this capacity? No, the, the, government's, the government's got to step in uh, for this and get the private operators like Siemens. Siemens is the massive one um, that produces wind turbines. Um, not necessarily give them unfavourable guarantees to the UK taxpayer, um, 
but they, they've got to do something in order to ramp up the capacity for the wind turbines and they've got to do something in order to increase the battery storage um, uh, units in the UK because there just isn't enough. What, what, what are you looking out for to tap into this theme then on the markets? Um, well, grid, grid, grid is the one that I've played. To, to give you some idea, it's um, it doesn't have UK subsidies. Um, it doesn't need them. Um, it pays a covered dividend of seven pence. It's quarterly, by the way, so it's actually even better for people who want a quarterly income. Um, but a, a total dividend of seven pence a year of a stock price of 112 pence. It's got a market cap of 270 million pounds. So the dividend yield is six and a half percent. Well, in a zero income uh, policy environment, um, a six and a half percent yield and the stock trades at about 13 percent premium to NAV is actually really good. The, the other way of actually playing it is obviously through Gresham House because they've got funds on their balance sheets um, to actually continue both organic and acquisitive growth. And they've got a heck of a track record of actually backing the right companies. So, yeah, those are the two companies that I'd actually be looking at. Yeah. I mean, renewable is is obviously a trend that's really sort of gathering momentum, uh, perhaps even more so now that, that governments both here and in the US are putting even more support behind it, also certainly potential governments in the US. Does this mean that... Oil is now something that you perhaps look less favourably on. I mean, AIM has been a happy hunting ground for those looking to invest in in oil companies and oil explorers. Um, And I know that you've obviously looked at a few yourself in the past. Are you you a bit more circumspect about the oil sector now, or is there still opportunity there? Um, Gas, I'm happy with. Oil, not so. Um, Because there's a gap that gas has got to fill as we actually go to um, a zero... um, emissions targets and as you know the statistics i've just given for the uk alone to actually ramp up to get to the stage in 10 years time for you know for offshore wind to actually generate upwards of 35 to 40 percent of our total energy needs um there is actually a gap that's got to be filled still and that's where gas comes in um so i I think over the next 30 years there's an opportunity in the north sea uh for players there to bring on stream gas fields um, that, you know, perhaps the large operators of mothballed in the past, because we, we will still have demand for it. And, you know, I mean, you know, you, you, you talk about um, protection of um, countries and energy protection, security is another thing. And it makes sense for Britain not to be so reliant on imports of gas as it is now through the pipelines through Europe from you know um, the former Russian states. So so no, I can I can I still see demand for that. It's just that the backdrop in the oil sector, so Brent crude, uh, West Texas Intermediates, light and heavy oil, is clearly negative. Um, you know that that's why BP and Shell have plunged this year. But I, I still see opportunities in the gas sector. Are you? Are you uh, do you have anything live at the moment in uh, in the sort of hydrocarbons? Um, I, I, yeah, I, I do. I mean, it's, I've still got um, Jersey Oil and Gas and Park Meads. That those are two bargain shares, and they're, they're both underwater. And um, you know, they weren't underwater this year, but they they, they are now um, because of the negative backdrop. Um, 
I've got Chariot Oil and Gas, which is looking at North Africa. Um, again, that's gas again. So th- those are the three that I'm still live on. Um, and I haven't changed my recommendation, despite the fact that the former two are underwater. And I mean, Chariot Oil is still heavily in profit from the 2017 bargain shares. Um, but yeah, th- those are the three that the only two that I actually cover in the sector. Yeah, and 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 probably probably not hunting around for for many more for the time being, given given there's, the opportunities elsewhere. The, the, there's no point. I mean, you go where sentiment is good and where you know that investors are looking for a theme. Um, you know, as those examples I've given earlier about um, be it remote conferencing calls or irrigation systems or 5G networks or in the healthcare sector, COVID. You, um, you mentioned security as well there. I mean, obviously you were talking about energy security specifically, but uh, security is, is uh, actually another theme uh, that, that's cropped up in one of your, your most recent articles, Chromec, um, which is an online-only article. It, it was. I, I was on the phone to the directors for about 30 minutes. The results were delayed I, well, I say they were delayed. They, they, they've taken ages to actually come out, and I eventually had a conversation with them on Wednesday when they were released. The thing that I pick, basically, this is a Sedgefield-based company that um, uses an element called cadmium zinc telluride uh, to produce radiation detection technology. It's used in things like the dirty bomb detectors um, to pick up risk of terrorism. It's incredibly sensitive and well it's firstly it's it's far cheaper to actually use than current things on the market and secondly its ability to pick up detection rates is so much better that that's why it's popular so 22 countries across the world actually use these dirty bomb detectors um but that that wasn't the theme in my article this week because i picked up something from the release and quizzed the directors at length over this because it's it's relevant to the covid19 pandemic and basically, back in May, they had a contract extension from an agency of the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, and the company is basically developing a biosecurity system um, that detects airborne pathogens. That's for the military. So the, the whole contract was all military-based. Um, but because of the outbreak of COVID, they've actually created a prototype to sample air and identify the presence of any biological pathogen in the air, including COVID, um, to flag the presence and also the viral load um, of, of, of COVID. Anyway, this, um, which I wasn't aware of, um, is going to the US MOD for field trials in January. Um, I got that out of the directors, is going to the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory in in London and also the Defence Air Repair Agency. That's part of the REF, basically. They're also sending units over to the States for a pilot deployment. The point about this technology is that you, c- you can use it in, like, shopping malls, airports. You can actually screen people going into an airport, into a shopping mall, to actually see whether or not they've got um, COVID without doing the NHS um, test on them that's the antigen test mm. you, you don't even need that uh, because it'll actually pick up the detection because it's so sensitive it uses dna sequencing and i, I also asked the directors how, how you know in your studies are using academics from Erlum institutes on this as well you know they're in the laboratory in centrefield working alongside the company's team i said how sensitive is this 
And they said it's got a false alarm rate, and wait for it, of one in 800,000. That means you could screen 66 million people in the UK and you'd have less than 100 false alarms. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's amazing. It, it sounds amazing. I mean, I, I, how far away is this from, from being, you know, commercialising, well, being, being able to be rolled out? Because this sounds like the sort of game-changing testing, if you can call it that, type technology that, that could really get the economy moving again. I mean, it's just this uncertainty over getting on a plane or going in a shop that, that really seems to be, you know, shutting everything down at the moment. This, if, this, if this gets to market, this is big. Oh, this is huge. It revolutionised the company, without a shadow of doubt. Um, the key is the field trials in January with the MOD. So obviously that's got applications for biochemical warfare for, you know, the UK defence departments as well, uh, the whole idea behind the technology in the first place. But I tell you what, if I was Matt Hancock... I would be on the telephone to the Defence Secretary in January and say, how have these trials gone, please? Be- because if they go incredibly well, and as well as you know, the company believes its technology stands up to, there's, there's no reason this can't be commercialised. Yeah, definitely pretty sounds... Damn, pretty damn quickly. Definitely sounds like one that, that we need to keep an eye on. Sounds like something we need as well. Well, I mean, ditto, the company needed it as well because, you know, the results weren't brilliant and that's because they were affected by delays in shipping out. Um, this this CZT detection is used in medical scanners and they've got some massive contracts over in Asia, but the lockdown over there meant that they couldn't actually ship out goods, so their revenues missed targets. And I mean, they're funded to trade, you know, for the next 18 months, but they still posted a small cash loss in the period. But no, it's a game changer that this company needs at this point. I mean, I kept I kept the stock in a buy because, again, the risk-reward at this level, to me, favours significant upside. Yeah, absolutely. Simon, that's been absolutely fantastic talking to you today. Lots of company ideas to think about, lots of thematic ideas to think about. I look forward to reading more about uh, your uh, your strategies in the magazine and, and on Alpha in the weeks ahead. No, no, it's a, it's a pleasure. No, good to speak, John. You too. Speak soon.